Today, I'm afraid I don't have very much insightful wisdom for you. I've been covering a property management position at a large property, 275 units, here in Shaker Heights during a transition period between our property managers. So essentially, we have our own property management company, but the person, the individual who is managing this particular property decided to move on a few weeks ago. We found a replacement and he's going to be starting in about a week and a half and I'm covering during that period. So it's been a little bit busy and haven't had too much time to learn that much. But I hope you enjoy today's episode nonetheless. On Invest in Square Feet, we unlock the secrets of wealthy entrepreneurship. I'm Matt Shields and my mission is to help business owners just like you protect your wealth so that you can invest passively in multifamily real estate. Today, we're going to learn all about short-term rental units and why one of the biggest misconceptions about short-term rental units is that you have to be in a vacation area in order to make it work. The fact of the matter is, is that short-term rentals can be done in every city and everywhere in the country. And we get into some of that reasoning on today's episode. I think there's probably two main things that I can point to back then. Number one was I was not clear on the outcome that I was after. So I I got out of the military and I sort of envisioned just business success as making a bunch of money. And I started self-educating, going to a lot of different conferences and stuff. And you'd see the the gurus on stage and they'd have all the flashy things that they'd they'd point to as success. And that was kind of like, I guess, my version of success at that time. And I, I was sort of chasing this, this idealistic version of success. And then it wasn't until, until years later that I got really specific on what's my version of success. And I realized none of that material stuff even matters to me. And it was really freedom is what I was after. And, cre- and to get there, I needed to create cash flow. And so what I was doing in the beginning wasn't matching with the outcome that I really wanted. And so I could never get there because I wasn't very specific on on what that outcome looked like for me. Once I got real specific, then I could backwards plan and create the steps and then just follow the steps. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing was I wasn't, I, I don't know if it's realistic or just I wasn't educated enough to understand the numbers and what it would take to create a business and where to spend the money in the right place that's actually going to matter in the beginning. You know, and everyone telling you, you need to, do all these different things. There's a million things you can spend your money on and 90% of it is just BS. It doesn't matter. It's if you didn't do any of it, you didn't set up your website. If you didn't go out and get business cards and didn't do any of that stuff in the beginning that people tell you you need to do. I mean, that's just a few examples of a laundry list. And you just focused on creating a product that people want and need, and then figured out how to sell that you'd be so much better off. But in the beginning, it feels better to to market yourself and spend money on all this stuff that's just nonsense. So if you had to look back and do things over again and you know, not invest in the website, not do the business cards, not do whatever, like the trade shows, the, you know, the, the various different marketing, how would you approach starting the business or, yeah. or you know, getting in and figuring that out? What would be your approach there? So... What I did in the beginning, I I got out of the military and I started flipping houses because I thought, well, I make these big chunks of money and it seemed like that's a way to start building wealth. 
Instead, what would have been much smarter is to figure out how can I create streams of income as quickly as possible and create the largest streams of income, the most cash flow possible. And by doing that, starts to free up capacity, you know, because I was in this constant treadmill that I was never going to get off of with flipping, where it's like you're constantly looking for that next deal. You have no capacity in your life. You just add more and more deals, which take up more and more of your time. But by adding cash flow, that's totally different. The more cash flow you add, the more capacity it frees up and the more ability you have to go out and add more cash flow then. So it's like this perpetual cycle. I didn't get that in the beginning. So I would have focused purely on what I'm doing now, if I if I had the knowledge that I have now, which is high cash flowing short term rentals. And things were different back then. I mean, this was 2011 when I first started. So Airbnb was different, the, the market was different, but the potential was still there. Maybe I would have done it slightly differently, but to create these streams of income using these sort of non-traditional short term rentals that really just cash flow phenomenally well. And it's and that's what's gotten us to a point of financial freedom and and not having to to rely on a nine to five job. Yeah. So obviously focusing in on the cash flow and and your your method of creating that cash flow is through short term rentals. So I'm assuming you're taking the assets that you, maybe you already had and rather than renting them out on a monthly basis, you you're doing short term rentals instead. Is that the approach? Somewhat. So we had Initially, I flipped for five years and then realized that that was getting me nowhere. Uh, and so then I transitioned into long-term rentals and we built up a portfolio of 24 of those, which which were good, but very unreliable. You know, you'd have a tenant move out and you'd have to re-rehab the whole place and it would eat up all your cash flow. And then we transitioned into, we tested out on our basement. Actually, we were moving. We created our basement. In our unfinished basement, we created a one-bedroom walkout apartment you know, um, that we rented on Airbnb and it worked phenomenally well. And so we kind of took the thesis behind that and started buying in this affordable town right next door where the properties would work really well as long-term rentals, but we could convert them into short-term rentals and buy these small multifamily properties. And the cash flow is just off the charts compared to long-term rentals. And the properties stay in tip-top shape because you're cleaning them constantly and repairing any little things that come up. So so we sold off all the long-term rentals because they were in areas that we really didn't want to be in. I didn't we had been in Illinois where I'm not super bullish on the future of uh of that state. We moved over to Indiana where the taxes are much lower, the uh bureaucracy is lower, the crime's lower, and things are heading in a positive direction, in my opinion. So, so now all of our properties all around Northwest Indiana in these, in these utilitarian markets that are, most people would say, nobody goes on vacation there. How can you buy a short-term rental there? But that's the perfect place to buy. There's still local draws. It's affordable enough for people to rent for all kinds of purposes, not just vacation. And people come to vacation because we're right near Lake Michigan as well. So, that's something that I've always wondered, you know, with short-term rentals. Do you need, obviously, vacation that makes perfect sense. I feel like this goes back to location, location, location. But is location as important with a short-term rental as what it is, you know, with, with other things? Like if you, I don't want to say if you have a, an undesirable location, but do you find like these homes can still be leased out on a short-term basis 
even if there isn't like this you know, major attraction, major draw, major reason for people to come to the area? Is it, is it still you know, feasible to be able to rent that out? Yeah. Have you, have you ever read the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman? I feel like I have, and I don't, I, it's been a long time since I have, but I, I, yeah. that sounds very familiar. Yeah, it's a great book and it's, it's super insightful. He basically, he's a psychologist who basically goes through all the biases that we have and how yeah. illogical we are as human beings <laughs> to assess different situations. And I feel like it applies so much to short-term rentals. Some of the biases that he outlines in the book apply to short-term rentals because uh, I think with most people that I talk to when it comes to short-term rentals, they think about the vacation, they think in terms of vacation and they think about the main vacation rental areas and they're like, well, that's where everyone wants to go. And they categorize everyone into that when in reality, Airbnb has blown up the whole short-term rental space. It used to be that it was just mom and pop little uh, rental companies that would rent out in these vacation rental areas. Now with Airbnb, that's just the way that people travel in general now. So there's millions upon millions of people that use Airbnb, whether they're going to these main vacation rental places or just anywhere, going to a wedding, going to a funeral, traveling for work, all the reasons. And it, they can get a house in a lot of cases just as cheap as a hotel room. So because of that, I think people default to these vacation rental areas thinking that's where everyone goes, but then they, they discount the fact that there's millions upon millions of people traveling to non-vacation, more people traveling to non-vacation rental areas than these few top vacation rental areas. So what you get is you get all the competition, especially with new people coming into this market, all going to the Gatlinburgs and the Florida Panhandle and Phoenix and the markets where you think people are going to vacation to those markets, particularly warm weather markets, and they leave all the low hanging fruit on the table. And you have tons of people who will book in these. And I don't want to say it works everywhere, but my strategy is focusing on just outside of the biggest, the bigger city. So there's still a population concentration and lots of reasons people are traveling. There's still local draws there, whether it's a museum or a a beach or a casino or whatever, there's draws there. But then the cost perspective is substantially lower than traditional vacation rental markets or buying in that city. So you're just outside of the city, maybe you can get it for a fourth, but the nightly rate is almost just as high as being in the city. So it's almost like you get the best of every world. You get less picky guests as well. And yeah, it can, so it, it absolutely works. And in areas outside of the the traditional markets. Yeah, yeah. interesting. <laughs> now, does this work with, I'll say, any type of asset as well? So, uh, you know, thinking about like typical multifamily apartments, you know, maybe there's 50 other apartments in the building. Have you tried that on those types of structures, those types of buildings, or does this work primarily with single family, maybe duplexes where, you know, people are, just in and out, you know, right next door, right? Does that, does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's really interesting to kind of think about scale because if you can take a single family home that as a long-term rental makes a fourth of what it makes mm -hmm. as a short-term rental in terms of cash flow, so you're making four times as much. And then you think about scaling that across 50 units, if that's possible, 
the numbers and the value of that asset, then if you could actually bring in that much more cash flow would be phenomenal. So I think it does. It does scale. We So we buy primarily focus now on two to four unit properties because there's a lot of them in our market and and uh, it just the cash flow is just so much better, several times better than it, that same property as a single family home. So it does scale to that level. And I, I have a few friends who are buying sort of like defunct motels that they're turning into more like boutique Airbnb experiences and making them really nice. And those have worked really well also. I don't know the scaling potential on like a, a typical apartment building. You know, there's different things to think about when it comes to that. I think potentially a hybrid mix might be the best of having some long-term, some short-term in there so that every property isn't a, isn't a short-term rental or every unit isn't a short-term rental. But I think a lot of it, it's going to depend on the market, the demand, and there absolutely is some scaling capability. I just don't know when you hit that inflection point where all of a sudden it drops off and you start losing the, the benefits, I guess, of, yeah. with too much scale. Yep. No, that makes, that makes sense. I'm curious. This is something that I've always, I've always wondered. And I don't know how it's been a long time since I've had any property, single families and duplexes, quads. I'm curious on the larger properties, the bank will be involved with essentially the occupancy, right? Monthly, bi-monthly, they're always asking for occupancy reports. What's your occupancy? All of this, right? So I'm just curious from your experience, has the bank ever looked at these these assets, these these spaces as being unoccupied or is that not something that you've had any exposure to that with, with the types of lenders that you're using? I'm just curious because yeah. from a, a multifamily perspective, I feel like even if it was bringing in cash flow, it's only occupied, which actually that's another question. I'm curious what the average occupancy actually is. Is it 50%? Is it like, you know, occupied 15 days out of the month? So from a bank's perspective, they would see that as a vacant unit, but it's producing more cash flow than as if it was when it was occupied. So it makes sense. But I'm just curious, you know, kind of an old school way of looking at things. How have you seen the banks, you know, looking at that, that particular situation? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like the, the older school banks especially in the commercial space, you know, they want to monitor that really closely. They ask for at least annual reports on operations and all of that. The lenders that I work with are typically not as involved. They're doing a 30-year DSCR fixed rate loan. There's no balloon payment or anything like that. And it's, they're underwriting it up front and then it's like Godspeed, basically. They write the loan and that's it. And I think it's just because it's smaller loan amounts and they just, a lot of them probably don't have the capacity to, to stay as involved and collect reports and, and monitor it that closely. But, but I think also a lot of lenders are coming around to the idea of short-term rentals. I mean, it's, it's really a tough thing to ignore in today's market with how many users there are, how many operators there are, and just the numbers. I mean, it just makes sense. People who were dead set that they'd never dip their toe into this are like, I just can't ignore it anymore based on the return. So, most of the lenders I work with, they're DSCR lenders. They're open to the fact that it's being used as a short-term rental. Now, some of them will underwrite it as a long-term rental. They'll pull the the rent rates, even if it's not rented out, when they do their appraisal, they pull what the market rent is. And then it still has to meet the DSCR criteria, basically 
the income has to cover your PITA, your principal interest taxes and insurance payment. And so as long as it does that, then they're comfortable with it, even though you're going to use it as a short-term rental and probably make a lot more than the long-term rental income. Others are actually underwriting it purely as a short-term rental now. There's a handful of them that I, I work with now that they've gotten beyond the fact that it has to work as a, as a long-term rental. They have different rules sometimes. Sometimes it needs to be in a more traditional vacation rental area or be an established vacation rental for a year or two before they'll underwrite it using those numbers. But some will just pull the AirDNA data, which is the, the big data site that, that tells you what you should anticipate making on properties. Uh, short-term rental properties, and they just underwrite it based on that income. And as long as the DSCR checks the box using that income, they'll do the loan. Yeah, interesting. What types of things do you need to have in place for being able to convert a space into a short-term rental? Obviously, it needs to be furnished. You know, and I, I don't think you need to go all out on the furnishings, but I'm I'm curious from your perspective, does it help? yield more revenue if you do invest in higher quality things to fill the space with more decoration? Or is it, you know, best if it's more minimalistic, less expensive things, you know, so you don't have that initial capital outlay? I'm just curious on your perspective from a tangible filling the space perspective, like what have you found to be the best recipe there? Yeah, I think real estate investors are a little bit handicapped when it comes to this. I certainly was when I was first getting started with short-term rentals because I was so used to the fact that a two-bedroom house makes what a two-bedroom house makes. Like, it doesn't matter if it's in the same market, you can put in the fanciest amenities and and it's going to rent for essentially the same. And so my wife, who is not a real estate investor, it doesn't have a real estate investor background. She hasn't really ever been really interested in real estate investing, is now very interested in, in working side by side with me in the short-term rental space, which I've seen a lot with other people I've worked with because of the whole design aspect, the the customer-facing aspect, you know, the guest components. Like she enjoys that stuff. I enjoy the spreadsheets and the investment and finding deals and, and that sort of thing. So we kind of complement each other, but she had to really work over the first couple of years to get me to come around to the fact that I need to spring a little bit more for the furnishings and creating the experience. So she's really good at thinking through who the ideal guest is going to be and what is the feeling that we want to create. And you are absolutely outsized rewarded for doing that as opposed to just, I'm going to put a couch, a bed, a TV, some pots and pans and it's a furnished space. You know, that's the exact same space can rent for totally different amounts. A good example is we went to a place called the Fields of Michigan, which is in South Haven, Michigan. It's a, a blueberry field on 10 acres. And they initially built nine sites for these canvas tents. It's just a big canvas tent with a bathroom on the back, but it's like a pretty rustic bathroom. They've expanded to 19 now, which is their capacity because they were doing so well. And they rent for three fifty a night to sleep in a tent. And I initially was like, this is insane. How is this possible? And that's why we went and stayed there because we just wanted to see <laughs> how they were charging this. And we would actually go back because it was just an amazing experience. They think through every detail. It's like you're in nature, but you don't have to think about anything. And then right down the street, somebody tried sort of like a copycat model 
but it's not marketed nearly as well. It's just like a campsite, basically. Exact same tents. And they struggle to get a hundred bucks a night. So three fifty to a hundred, like that's a massive, massive difference in terms of of the performance, but the exact same asset. It's just all in the marketing and the experience you create. Yeah. Interesting. I remember I read a story about uh a short-term rental company who would decorate their spaces in various different themes. And I can't remember what they all were, but I remember the one was Harry Potter and, and they might've had multiple Harry Potter themes. Have you done any themed homes like that or, or situations like that? I'm curious, what type of premium, if you have any experience with this, what type of premium you might be able to expect going that route versus another route? Yeah. We actually, interestingly, we just finished a triplex, um, which is right downtown Michigan City. It's a few blocks walk to the beach, right next to Outlet Mall, right next to all the bars and restaurants. It's just a great, perfect location. And we gutted the whole building. It was, it was nasty when we bought it. So we gutted the whole thing, painted it yellow. And my wife, again, stepped in and she, she was the impetus. I, I wouldn't have painted it yellow. I would have been much more neutral in terms of colors. But we have, it, we call it the Sunshine House. And then one of the units is a breezy beach unit. One is the wild woodlands and one is scenic skies. So scenic skies is like yellow. Everything's like sunshine and real light. Wild woodlands is green and like forest theme. And then breezy beach is blue and all the beach types theme. So it's a way to differentiate. You know, if you have an apartment building, everything's neutral because it's easy to maintain that way. And if we did that, we'd have three of the same listings on Airbnb and it wouldn't stand out. But because they're unique and they each have sort of a different theme, it's not as extreme as Harry Potter, <laughs> but they stand out and the bookings have been great. And so, so it's, it's tough to identify the exact premium that you get as a result of that. But I think the occupancy is the main thing that you really get. People are drawn to it. The reviews are great. People like the experience of having something a bit different outside the box. That's why people use Airbnb. So so I think we can charge a little bit more, but then we stay pretty solidly booked up. So I think you, you asked about occupancy earlier. We are at Northwest Indiana. So obviously in the winter, it's it's hell on earth here, right by the, the Great Lakes. But it still stays at 50% occupancy because of these utilitarian purposes. So we have nurses, we have workers come in, stay there for several weeks at a time. And then we have people coming for the casino and coming to go shopping at the outlet mall and going to the wineries and all those things. But it's primarily weekends or long weekend bookings and it's smaller groups. And then in the summertime, we're at pretty much 100% occupancy. We'll have a few day gap here and there, but, but it's almost booked up completely across all 21 listings. So it's just, there's nowhere near enough properties in the summertime for the amount of people that want to visit this area. And so so we stay booked up. So it averages to about 70%, which works out really well in terms of, of our numbers. I initially went into it thinking if we stay vacant all winter, the numbers still work better than using the properties as long-term rentals. But I was pleasantly surprised with the winter. Yeah, that's that's really, really interesting. How do you go about identifying the opportunities, right? I mean, is there certain focus on, you know, this is the number of, call it transient people, or, you know, these are the numbers of 
people that are coming into town for various events? Do you look at all that, like that type of data to make sure that you've qualified that there's going to be enough people coming in um, prior to making any type of investment decisions? Or again, just curious how you go through and, and qualify that as being a legitimate viable option for a particular yeah. opportunity. Yeah, it's a, a bit of a process and it's evolved over time, but I don't like to reinvent the wheel. So as I'm looking at, at markets to invest in, I'm doing research, I narrow it down first. I look at big data to see where is the potential because you can go on AirDNA and see any city, what the averages are. So if you're starting with an average occupancy of 30% and a nightly rate of $90, probably not an area you want to explore deeper. Um, so you can just pass on that. But I start with areas in the Midwest or Southeast, typically, because those are areas where it's extremely affordable. And I go just outside of the larger cities in those areas. And then I look for local draws. And so, so you can really narrow down to a short list. And then you dive into the metrics and see, okay, how are properties doing? And I'll, I'll go to neighborhoods and look at if I'm interested in buying in a certain area, I'll look at where the properties are performing the best. I read through every review on Airbnb, see when they were left to see are there gaps and when people are staying, see what their calendars look like, are they booked up and what their price points are. So you can do a ton of market data to see this is working in this area. And then on top of that, a huge thing that we've done over the years that or that we've realized over the years and where we concentrate now that's really helped optimize our our properties because of what I just shared previously about the differences in travel in the slow season and high season. So we buy primarily two to four unit properties because of this amazing versatility that it gives us. So in the high season, typically what you find is there's nowhere near enough lodging and you have grandparents, their adult kids, and their grandkids that all want to travel together for a summer trip. And, uh, and so you see a lot of that. And so if you look at on AirDNA, it'll show you in a market how many two bedroom, three bedroom, four bedrooms there are. You'll see, and typically there's a huge drop off after three bedroom. There's just not that many of them. So if you buy a three unit like we just bought and we have it listed as 16 people can sleep there, there's nowhere near enough 16 occupant houses in that market for the amount of large groups that want to travel. And if there are, usually it's a big mansion that you're paying a massive premium for. But we can charge a premium above all the price point that we charge for the three individual units for people who want to stay there because if 16 people are traveling together, typically they're dividing it up and $1,000 a night isn't insane, you know, in terms right. of cost when you divide it up between that many people. But $1,000 a night for a relatively affordable three unit adds up pretty quickly yeah. in terms of income. So that's what we get booked out most of the summer is the the super listing, we call it, which is the whole building. And then in the winter, if you had a 16 unit house, or I'm sorry, a house that slept 16 people, you would really have to drop the price way down because you just don't have large groups traveling in the, in the winter time or in the off season. And so you have to price it in line with smaller properties. Well, we can drop our pricing, but we have three different streams of income for these smaller units. And they each get booked up individually. So so you've got the best of both worlds with multiple streams of income coming in and then the premium on the large property in these relatively affordable areas. Yeah. 
that's really, really interesting. I never, never thought of combining them together like that. What are some of the drawbacks or some of the things that you have realized after being in this business, like the learning things, like, well, I didn't realize that was going to happen from a negative standpoint. Like you thought this was going to be the way, but it ended up being this way for a, for a negative result. Yeah. I mean, I think we have small challenges that come up all the time. I mean, you're always learning. Like the, the way we do things now is so different than the way we did in the beginning in terms of just the way, like we thought we just set up a nice property and we'll get five-star reviews. And we realized all of a sudden we're getting four-star reviews from people who are raving about the property. And we're like, what, what's going on? If you're raving about the property, why are you not giving us five stars? And we realize there's this disconnect that people are like, well, they, they think in terms of hotel ratings and they're like, well, this isn't the Waldorf Astoria. It's just unbelievably nice house. So it's four stars, not understanding that that's actually killing us in the search algorithms on Airbnb and VRBO. So now we have this whole process of like touch points with the guest from the time they request a book all the way to checkout day, where we're setting the expectation that we pride ourselves on five stars. We're going above and beyond to deliver that. We personalize the experience as much as possible and, and do all these extra things. And as a result, we get almost all five-star reviews on all our properties now. But those are things that we just didn't know in the beginning, you know? And so it's, it, they're kind of painful to learn and that's just one example. Pricing is another one. It's a total art and science together. Every single day it changes based on the inventory levels and the distance from your high season to low season. And so there's a lot to understand with pricing. So I think, I mean, overall, this type of investing where you can make, on some of our properties, we have over 100% cash on cash return, wow. which is pretty unheard of, you know, on relatively turnkey properties. So overall, it works. It's worked really well. It's worked better than we expected. But there's a lot of little things that you need to learn along the way and optimize because you can buy the best property in the world and make no money. It's all in the operations of how you you operate it going forward. And now we have a great team, too, that helps us. Um, so it's it's scaled with time. And we as we've learned things, we've implemented things. And it's sort of organically grown as we figured it out. And are you able to do this remotely as well? Or is this something that you would say you want to be located in the same city? Obviously, you know, you're going to need a team, you're going to need cleaners, you're going to need handymen, fix-it people that will all need to be on site. But do you feel like this is something that you would be able to set up and manage remotely as well? It's actually, so it's really ironic because my wife and I run this program called the First Vacation Rental Investment Blueprint. And uh, it's where we teach people how to buy their first high cash flowing short-term rental using this model. And we specifically set it up based so that it would, the step-by-step -step process works whether you're down the street or across the country. Because the whole first year that we operated, I was my own worst enemy. I mean, I would drive over there when guests couldn't figure out Wi-Fi or get into the property or issues would come up. And I realized I was just wasting so much time and opportunity. So then we really focused on setting up systems that would work, whether we're right next door or across the country. And, and so now there's properties I haven't visited in over a year, even though they're 20 minutes away, because we have a really good team in place. And so 
of the people that we've, we've worked with 144 people now in this vacation rental investment blueprint program. And the top most successful people are the ones that are remote. And Mm. the intuitive thing is to think, well, they did it despite being remote, but it's actually, I think after thinking through this a lot, it's because they're remote because of the compound effect of not being able to do all these little things that waste so much time. You're, you're forced to find good people to do the steps and you just don't realize if you're local and you insert yourself into these systems, how much time that that wastes. And so, so being forced to do it remote, there's people in the program who went from zero to 10 in one year where others right down the street, you'd think they'd have an advantage and they're, you know, they were just getting their first one after six months because they were driving out to every property and there for every inspection. And they're like manually hiring cleaners and all these different things that you can automate so much easier. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. And I, I feel like that is one of those things that you need to go through as an entrepreneur to be able to learn that. Right. And I remember, so I used to have an electrical contracting company and I remember when I was making a shift into the technology side of things, making a conscious decision of not wanting to learn how to code because if I was the one who learning how to code, then I'm going to be in there figuring things out, you know, like nobody else could do it, right? So it's one of those things that you almost don't want to be knowing every little step of the way, every little step of everything that's going on. You need, like you said, to find that team, have the right systems in place, and be able to hand that off and let, you know, know that somebody else is going to be able to take care of that particular situation yeah. for you. Um, Absolutely. If someone wanted to get involved in this, you, you mentioned your program. What type of capital do they need to start in this? What are some of the things that they should think about in order to be able to start doing something like this? So the great thing about it is that you can in almost any financial situation, you could make it worse. You could go out and buy one of these. The way that we buy most of ours now is we get the DSCR loan, which covers 75% of the purchase price. And so then everyone says, well, then you got to raise the other 25%. Well, we're buying in relatively affordable markets, like I talked about. So the other 25% isn't a massive amount, not like we're buying a million dollar property. So you have to raise 250,000 it's a couple hundred thousand dollar property. So it's a much smaller amount. And then we'll go out to private investors, you know, friends, family, anyone you know that might have a a retirement account and say, hey, you know, we'll give you a fixed double digit return if you'll make up the second loan on this property and make up the equity. And so in a lot of cases, they're extremely happy with the, the income on that loan. It's still secured by by a second mortgage on the property and we don't have any money out of pocket in these deals. So, so you could replicate this over and over. DSCR lenders will give you as many DSCR loans as you want, as long as they, they check the box of the income covering the, the monthly expenses. And then I think everyone would be really surprised at how many people they know that would be willing to do a double digit fixed interest rate return on a, a loan that's backed by a property that's bought really well and cash flows phenomenally well. So even with those two loans in place, we still cash flow really, really well. Yeah, interesting. Is there anything that I haven't asked that you feel that people should know about this industry? I think you've covered a lot. 
just the main thing is is trying to wrap your head around the fact that where you think about where you want to travel personally is maybe not the best investment from a financial standpoint. It's so counterintuitive and it it happens over and over with people I work with where they come into the program and they think, well, I need to buy in the Blue Ridge Mountains because that's where I want to want to visit. And so I'm looking at $700,000 cabins in the Blue Ridge Mountains and the numbers don't make sense. And they're like, well, this doesn't work. And I'm like, well, why don't you look in Ohio on Lake Erie where you can buy a, a $200,000 two unit, the cash flow is several thousand dollars per month. And they're like, well, nobody's going to travel there. And I show them examples and it's just like this mindset shift that has to take place of getting beyond your preconceived notions around what you personally think of as a short-term rental. So I think that's the the hardest thing for people. Once you get past that, the rest of the steps kind of can fall into place. But a lot of people kind of stand in their own way, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but I, I live in Cleveland, Ohio, too. So, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of different areas like where, where could we maybe try this at? So um, I bet if you looked around you, I know there's several markets that I've got somebody who uh, has a, a property in, in Akron that's doing really well and uh, a couple other people in Ohio. All right, so we learned a lot in this episode today. We learned how important it is to be clear about the outcome that you're specifically looking for and what happened when Kirby was not that clear on that outcome. We learned that we need to focus on cash flow as the priority rather than the thousand of other things that people will typically focus in on. We learned how Kirby actually tested the short-term market simply by renting out his basement. So he went small first and tested out this idea before he committed to launching short-term rentals in some of his other assets that he owned. So that's a tip. You can start small, use a small space, whether this be in your own home or maybe this is another property that you may be renting out. Start small first and then see how it grows from there. We learned that with short term, with the short term rental market, you don't need to be located in some type of vacation area or very, very desirable area because there's always people traveling. There's always business people and people traveling to every city every day. And those people typically will be looking for better accommodations rather than just settling in a hotel. So this is a great opportunity to be able to serve some of those people with your spaces. So don't think that you are not in a desirable location because, again, people are traveling everywhere throughout the country every single day. One of the hacks that Kirby has mastered is applying this short-term rental opportunity to a triplex unit because what he has found is that if you have a triplex, you're able to rent that to three different parties or there is a lot of competition or a lot less competition, I should say, for the larger accommodations, right? So if you're a group of 16 people and you're all splitting this cost to be able to, to lodge in a place, Typically, the places, the locations that 
can accommodate that many people are incredibly expensive. So if you have a facility, again, say a triplex where 16 people can fit inside of each one of those units, you're able to offer your space to that larger group of people for a better price. Or you can also obviously, again, rent them out for the individual members as well, the individual guests as well. We also talked about how if you create special themes, it can be a way to stand out in the competition, right? So this is a way to be able to maybe offer a, a different experience or a themed experience to your homes, making them a little bit more desirable than having just the, the normal everyday experience when someone stays in a short-term rental. And this also can create a premium factor as well, where you're able to charge a little bit more for that space as well. And one of the last surprising things that we talked about was how Kirby realized when he is an owner operator, he actually found that it is better to not be the person who's always there fixing things. And the way that he found this was he had homes that were available or that he was close to his home. So he would always feel the need to be the one to go out and fix things or try to try to repair whatever the item might be. And the problem was, is that that was taking away from a lot of his productivity time on the business. So he actually found that when he started purchasing assets that were a little bit further away where he wasn't able to work on them, it actually worked out better for him in the long run. So keep that in mind. Don't be so quick to jump in to fix or repair things or purposely purchase assets that are a little bit too far away or maybe even across the country so that you need to hire a team and you need to go down that path of being able to have other people work on these projects rather than you feeling the need to jump in and solve these specific projects. And if you're looking to learn more from Kirby, head over to livingoffrentals.com forward slash start. And he has a masterclass put together that you can learn some of these techniques. And if you wanted to learn more from him, there is a link to his calendar where you can schedule some time to talk directly to Kirby. And as always, if you want to understand what the wealthy do, head over to Invest in Square Feet and sign up for our newsletter. We are going to be releasing special excerpts from each of our guests that you can only get from that newsletter. And that is also where we advertise the various different opportunities that we may have to invest in various real estate opportunities. And we also even have some software opportunities that are, are going to be coming up very, very soon as well. We drop every Wednesday on whatever podcast platform it is that you use.